Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Episode 48 of the Bowery Boys, the Stonewall Riots. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And we've got a provocative topic this week, I'd have to say. I'd say it's pretty exciting. The Stonewall Riots. Um, uh, Stonewall is a bar in the West Village, a gay bar, and there was a riot there on June 28th. And we're not talking about a laugh riot either. Oh, no, no. Though there might be a few comic anecdotes along the way. On June 28th, 1969, there was a riot between police and people in the gay community some and some people who were in the bar Stonewall. And a group of people who had been marginalized for so long suddenly had an event to coalesce behind. It it was an important moment in New York City history and also in gay rights history for not only New Yorkers, but for the entire world. Now, for those who will be participating in gay pride functions in June throughout the country, this is sort of a primer on how those things basically got started and how they got started in the West Village of New York. If you're not participating in any of those, this is still kind of a surreal look at some 1960s downtown life. It was very dirty. It was corrupt. A strange mix of people and places. Yeah, we've got a whole assortment of characters. The mafia from comes in. Mafia yes. to drag queens to police commissioners to the FBI. So pull up a bar stool as we sit down and take a look at the story behind the Stonewall Inn. Okay, Greg. Now, we usually start with situating the listener. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that because we're not talking about Grand Central Station, we're talking about a gay bar in the West Village that maybe some of our listeners aren't too familiar with. A hole in the wall. I mean, basically. A hole in the wall. Um, Why don't you give us a little orientation? Well, of course. The the Stonewall Bar is a a gay and lesbian bar, two floors. There's the, the current incarnation of it is quite different than the one that we are about to discuss. It's at 53 Christopher Street, West 4th Street, and Waverly Place in the Greenwich Village. Now, West Village, yeah. West Village is a spider web of streets, so you're really going to have to look at a map if you want to go find it. It's across from this place called Christopher Park, and... Also next to that is Sheridan Square. People confuse the two, but there's... Right. I think I always call Christopher Park Sheridan Square, right? And the reason you do that is because standing in Christopher Park is a statue of Philip Sheridan. 
the Civil War hero. <laughs> as a matter of fact, because of his presence there, people are sometimes mistake Stonewall as being named after Stonewall Jackson, another Civil War hero. Oh. But in fact, Christopher Park is right in front of Stonewall, and Sheridan Square is actually a place you can't even walk anymore. It's a garden. It's a fenced-in garden. Stonewall has been there for many, many, many decades before that, and the neighborhood is going through a lot of different changes. Back us up a little bit to the neighborhood's origin. Back to, say, the Dutch village of New Amsterdam? Does that, <laughs> does that work for you? If, it, if that's where we need to go? Well, back in the day, the village and the West Village, that whole area, unsurprisingly, was farmland, of course. And it was outside the village of New Amsterdam and then of New York. It was a place, actually, during the Yellow Fever epidemic in 1791 and 1805, New Yorkers who were down at the they tip of Manhattan. They escaped there, right? Right. They were fleeing from New York City and going to some distant country land, otherwise known as the West Village. Yes. Now, the streets, as anybody who's familiar with the city knows, the streets are kind of a mess. I mean, we're so used to the grid plan. I've lived here for, I mean, almost 15 years, and I still get lost in the West Village. I mean, it's... uh, It's it's, part of the charm. Yeah. (laughs) You could say that they follow their own logic, and in a way they do, because they were based on the original footpaths that the Indians and early farmers used. And once the villagers started putting in these streets, they wanted to preserve these footpaths. So that's why you wind up with some some kind of crazy streets. Now, Christopher Street is the, the longest and the oldest street in the village. And there are other you know, streets as well, like gay streets, mm-hmm. which people buy photographs of on Broadway. Though know. it's not named for gay people. It's named for a man named Gay. Yes. Sidney Howard Gay. He was the editor of the Anti-Slavery Standard, and he helped organize a riot in 1834 against slavery, once again underscoring the villagers... As a radical place of Free thinkers. Free thinkers, sure. And it was because also of this tendency that I think the gay population was drawn to the village because there were free spirits and alternative thinkers, unconventional lifestyles. And they were, you know, gathering in any number of bookstores or cafes around this area. The Village Voice uh, had its headquarters over at 7th Avenue in Christopher. Across the street. Just across the street. Now, in 1930, a place opened in a former stable at 51 and 53rd Christopher Street called Bonnie's Stonewall. This was a tea room, and it was notorious for being associated with a book that was a smash that year, a lesbian love story that came out called The Stonewall. Oh, really? So Bonnie's Stonewall. By the 1960s, it was simply called The Stonewall Inn. Now that you've set up where The Stonewall is, let me set up what it's like to be a gay person and that in that period of time there's a constant fear of violence even if you're walking down the street and you do something that reminds people that you might be gay the west village was the centerpiece of gay and lesbian activity a lot of gay homeless youths at this time people running away from home and they heard about west village and this is where they you know wanted to go and hang out and meet friends but they had few places to congregate outside of the bar scene um, and there were of course public places like parks where they would linger for more sexual behavior but bar scene were basically the social scene. Unfortunately, you could be the victim of police entrapment if you went to a gay bar at this particular time. Right, because I was going to ask, were gay bars legal? Believe it or not, they weren't technically legal. It wasn't even legal to serve homosexuals drinks in a bar. Now, this, wasn't, this is maybe kind of a well, lack... Think of all the money they lost. <laughs> 
little did they know. But there were some gay bars that were just sort of like under the table. They weren't being, these particular laws weren't being enforced. But another way to, to get arrests was police entrapment, where policemen would actually dis- act like gay men, go into these bars, pick somebody up, and then, of course, the moment that the other person you know started coming on to them in some way, then they could arrest them. And when you say coming on to them, it could be as simple as talking to them. Yeah, it could just be like a, friendly, nice yeah, a friendly phrase back. It's funny, in the 50s, there were actually quite a few gay bars in this neighborhood. Very conservative mayor Robert Wagner then stepped in, and there were a lot of busts. Um, and at one point in 1960, all the bars were closed but one. And Wagner had his own reasons for wanting to close them down, too. Most notably, I think, the 1964 World's Fair, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, he wanted to clean up the whole city. Then, when you know, had the world coming to New York, you didn't want a bunch of... You can't you know, have these sleazy, you know, what they considered sleazy places with all these degenerates running around and you need to be a clean, wholesome city, which was an impossible thing to do for New York t- at any time, but certainly then. Right. There were early gay rights organizations, but they were very, very formative at this time and definitely fighting upwind. In 1963, there was the very first gay protest in New York. It was called the New York League of Sexual Freedom, and they picketed the Whitehall Induction Center to protest some military policies. The Mattachine Society then comes along in New York. This is actually a San Francisco group that formed in the 50s. The founder of the Mattachine Society, his name was Henry Hay, he named the group after a medieval music and dance troupe. And they all wore masks. Oh, that, that. <laughs> and they danced around from city to city, and they wore these masks. And you know, his, he believed that the gays wore masks. Also, so that uh-huh. was like the and, you know the the hom- poetic it was theatrical the homosexuals. But I wouldn't shouldn't say homosexuals. The term that they used was homophile, right? Which is so a word not we would use today ever. But back then, that was the more preferred phrase. Right. was homophile. So anyway, New York got its own branch of the Mattachine Society in 1961. Mattachine did succeed in lobbying and getting some of this police entrapment to stop, and they were helped by a little bit more of a liberal mayor, John Lindsay, who then came in. Some of these crackdowns were beginning to stop, but there was so much work to still be done. And the Mattachines were smart, too. They were media savvy, and they formed relationships with journalists as well. So when entrapment would occur, many times you'd have men who were arrested call the Mattachine offices and the, they would set them up with an attorney or call the New York Post, which we know yes. was a liberal paper at the time, uh-huh. and get a little press coverage on this because Lindsay was saying that entrapment didn't even exist. It was clearly mm-hmm. illegal and it had no place in the police department. And luckily they were able to kind of seg into all these other, I mean, this is the late 60s. It's now mm-hmm. radical protest movements are happening everywhere, even up in Columbia. As a matter of fact, in 1967, Columbia University forms its own student homophile league. However, Stonewall, believe it or not, will be the tenderbox for a lot of the movement and momentum that they're trying to muster up. But Stonewall, if you will give us a little bit of an inside walking tour of it, is really not much to write home about and kind of an unlikely candidate for such a liberation movement. Well, the Stonewall was, by this point, it was a pretty well-known bar. Some have said that even before the riots, it was the most famous gay bar in New York. That isn't to say that it was the most beloved gay bar, but right, everybody sure. everybody knew the Stonewall. Sure. Anyway, so say you walk, let's walk inside the Stonewall and have a drink, shall we? We shall. So we're on Christopher Street. We walk in. The door has a small window in it to, so that the bouncer can look out and see who you are. You enter. You say hi to the bouncer. Now, it's a private club, Greg. It's a sure. dining club. Uh-huh. This is not a bar, remember? Because 
bars can't get licenses this, if they but, sell but this is how they did it was, but this is how they did it. it was a private club right it was a private club so you'd sign the little book when you walk in you could sign your name mickey mouse or whatever you wish on the left you hang up your coat and your hat walk into the bar and on in the front room there's a bar on the right side there's a dance floor behind that and that's sort of like the mainstream dance floor where mm-hmm. most of the clients from the front of the room the more conservative types would hang out if you walk through the bathrooms or through a side door you'd get into the back dance floor which was more popular with younger kids some of the street kids who would okay. hang out there and it had its own bar and i think that more illicit things were happening in that room i think so some, yeah i think so some too. drugs some prostitution some things like that all manner of, of debauchery so you had Two dance floors, two different rooms, two different bars. Sounds like a bar in the village today, yeah, right? Yeah, there's, there's nothing nothing extraordinary about it on the surface. As you said before, this was illegal, what was happening uh-huh. here. So the bar would get raided sometimes by the police. Now, a typical raid, because of other connections that the bar had with the police, would occur during very convenient times for the bar. <laughs> That's nice. A raid would happen, say, before the bar even opened or early on in the evening before it became packed. And oftentimes the police would come in, check IDs, kind of, you know, scare people a little bit, let people go. And then the bar would go ahead and reopen right away. The barkeep knew when the police were coming in, they'd flash on the lights so that white lights would turn on, which is frightening in any bar, gay or straight. But it sounds like it sort of became routine that you you go out and you may expect the bar to like be raided once and it just might be the way it it is. It was just another night out on the town. But Greg, I ask you, how did the bar owners know about this? How did they get off so easily. You have to think about this timing. Even think about the 20th century nightlife scene in New York. Who is in control of the bars? Who controls, you know, who controlled all the, the during prohibition? Who controls the bars in the 40s and 50s and who controls the gay bars now? It's the mafia. Wait, now? In the 60s. And uh, now as in the world that we're in right now in the podcast. Oh, gotcha. Not now. Okay, I'm I mean, sorry. there may be some now in, in the city at this very moment. Sex in the city can deal with that. But I am dealing with Stonewall here in the late 60s. Thank you. The mafia wasn't really looking out for the gay scene. Uh, they, were, they were just using them because they could make money. They charged really high entrance fees. They watered down all the liquor. Many of these bars were not safe places to be. The mafia distrusted and looked down upon their own clientele and of course as you infer they're open to police corruption and because of that the clientele had had little legal retaliation if anything were to ever happen into any of these bars but this strikes us today as kind of an unusual concept doesn't it that the mob was running gay bars but not only were they 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 weren't just running it they were keeping the whole thing alive as a matter of fact i read a, a one quote that said our only hope lies in corruption like, you, they, like, these gay bars wouldn't be open because the mafia were the, really the only ones that were operating the places and making any kind of income off of it. After the crackdown that I had mentioned earlier in 1960, the mafia had reopened all these places and they bribed the police. What I'm basically trying to say is the mafia was no friend of the gay scene. Right. They were using the gay scene, but the gay scene had no choice mm. in the matter. And the gay clients had a lot of money to spend on watered-down drinks that they couldn't get anywhere else. And um, now Stonewall is also a mafia-run place. It was run by a young mafioso whose oh, name was has by Tony Loria, who actually went by the name Fat Tony. Mm-hmm. Um, Fat Tony's father was also in the mafia, and in fact, they owned a building 
just down the street at Waverly Place and 6th Avenue. In fact, Tony made the Stonewall like a bottle club, you know, private club, as you said. The Prophets, believe it or not, would actually make themselves all the way up to Matthew Iniello. I'm sorry, I have to say that slowly. Um, also known as Matty the Horse. He was a member of the Genovese family and was basically put in charge of the West Village area. So he got to cut off the profits of all of the uh, money that was going into Stonewall. Stonewall also had a much more notorious manager, and his name was Ed Murphy. Not to be confused with the comedian Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Ed Murphy, well, why don't we just call, keep, we'll call him by his, his nickname, The Skull. I just say people he disagreed with would disappear. He used Stonewall as a way to actually extort money from people. You know, they even claimed that he kept card information of some of the clientele at the door. Most severely, you know, a lot of these men were closeted with families and worked on Wall Street. And those were the ones that he targeted specifically. They would sign their name, be seen there. There might even be some photographic evidence. He could use all of this to extort money from them. So one could say that not only was money coming from the watered-down drinks, but also from extortion. Yeah, I mean... you. I mean, no one, no one has the receipts, box office receipts, if you will. But you know, he probably made a lot of money off of that. And I mean, he was such a scoundrel, the skull. He even had information on J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI. Right, and I guess today it's known that J. Edgar Hoover was also cross-dressing and into some of these other. Alternative scenes himself. Alternative lifestyles, we can say. And there were photographs taken of. But this explains then why the FBI wouldn't be stepping up and investigating the mob police connection. Sure, And would be staying out of the whole thing. J. Edgar Hoover, at the same time, would go on the record nationally and say that there was no mob, that the mafia was sort of a delusion and an invention of the popular culture. And now we know why he said that. Now we know. So this all basically sets up the sort of a fateful events that happen the last weekend of June 1969. Correct. How did the police chief in this particular case, whose name was Seymour Pine... Right. Seymour Pine was the deputy inspector who was in charge of the plan to shut down Stonewall. Now, he had raided other clubs as well. You know, the big event that we talk about happened on Friday night, June 27th, or early in the morning on June 28th, 1969. Earlier that same week, he had raided the stone wall and closed it down, but sort of inconsequentially, you know, it was shut down just temporarily. And like the one, barman, of these, right, there's one, of, one of these routine shutdowns that we've talked about earlier. And I believe that the skull looked up at him and said something like, I'll be open tomorrow, <laughs> you know, rubbing it in yeah, his sure, face right. that he just couldn't shut this place down. So Pine put together a team and put together a plan. So that night on Friday, June 27th, they met in his office and it was what Pine and seven undercover officers. They dispatched two female undercover agents to go to the Stonewall and to enter, which they did, and to sort of get inside the club and see what was going on and also take note of what bartenders were serving, the illicit alcohol that they weren't allowed Uh to serve, who was drinking, and also take note of the transvestites, because remember, it was against the law for 
men or women to wear what more than three pieces of clothing that were not you had to wear gender, gender appropriate yeah gender appropriate clothes basically you had to wear a certain number of them but speaking of clothes all the policemen were in plain clothes right obviously they weren't in they weren't in their uniforms so the police women went inside pine and his officers were waiting out front in christopher park but they never got a signal from them they kept waiting and waiting and the women never came out so they just decided well we'll just go ahead and go in and this is also amazing i have to say that these guys just go inside. They saw all of these people go in because the Stonewall was crowded, of course. It was a Friday night. It was packed. They just assumed that because it was a gay club, there wasn't going to be any problem. They could go in and bust a club like they had busted so many before, and there wouldn't be really a great resistance to them because... What are the gays going to do? They're going to like stand up and make a fuss and get arrested and go through the hassle or get publicly like they humiliated. Cer- they weren't they weren't expecting any uh, confrontations at all. It hadn't happened before. They the cops went inside. They closed the bar. The lights went up. One twenty a.m. One twenty a.m. on Saturday morning. Um, they begin to gather people and they begin to arrest people. But the first signs of conflict, believe it or not, Tom, ha- actually happened with a couple transvestites. Who were, I mean, everyone was in the throes of like having a great time and a couple transvestites, they didn't want to go. So they were, they were pulled aside and they were arrested, but they were screaming at the cops and everything. What you realize is it's, it starts with these little things and just builds and builds. The police were letting most of the people go. You know, they were checking IDs, which terrified some people because who knows what they were going to do with that information. But they were letting most of the people out and pushing them out of the club once they checked their IDs. But the transvestites were stuck inside and getting searched by the police because they had to be searched. Right, they right. had to prove that they were of the gender that they were dressing <laughs> they were, for. Right, right. And, and, and clearly they were not. Right. And they even had, you know, those same undercover women, um, that is to say, the undercover police women. <laughs> As opposed to, right, right. gotcha. Uh, checking out, were offering to be in the ladies' room to check out the transvestites to check for gender, to make sure that they were appropriate. God, now, most oh. most of the transvestites would say, forget it, okay, I'm a guy, whatever, I'm wearing women's clothing, before they got to that sort of level of humiliation. But of still, that's kind of, that's, hor- that's horrifying. A, so what was interesting, though, is as that was happening inside, those who were allowed to leave they didn't necessarily leave like they left the bar but they all started congregating outside the timing was really wrong on pines part because around like, 1 1 30 it's prime bar time other people were coming out of other bars so they could gather and gawk and all of a sudden they had this huge scene in front of the stonewall bar which they had were not prepared for and they weren't anticipating because i mean again they were expecting people to to basically thank them and say thank you for letting me go and yeah, race off into the night, never to be seen again. But there were these rumors that the, that the people that were inside the club were being arrested and then getting beat up by the police. So there was this animosity, and they were the crowd started to get a little vicious, and they were many of them were drunk anyway. Some of them wanted to get back in to check on their friends. They were sick of this abuse that they were getting from the cops. As people were leaving, you know, people that were like not being arrested, it got kind of crazy, and like people would leave, and like the audience would applaud. I mean, the the crowd would applaud, and 
like right, people would like to do a show. You some know. drag queens, I guess, that were being allowed out would, you know, sort of take a curtsy or smile at the police officers and say, well, hello, officer. You know, things like that, working the crowd a little bit more and more. And there was, so you can, as you can tell, there's a certain lightness in the air a until, kind of party until the paddy wagons pull up. Then all of a sudden, the seriousness hits the crowd of like, oh, are oh, people really getting arrested? Really? This is happening? So they load up the paddy wagons with some of the mafia members, some of the bartenders. Then the three transvestites came out, and, you know, it's, there was still some, like, some laughter. Because, you know, there was someone even yelled out at the crowd, oh, I'm glad they're taking her. She needs a rest. Oh, no, they didn't. But it's, it's soon, there, soon thereafter, some of the first violence outside happened. A cop sh- starts shoving one of these transvestites, and then, like, she hits him back with the purse. Now, that seems kind of funny, but... All, all of a sudden, you're seeing this sort of violent activity, and you're just sort of like sitting outside waiting. It's very it, tense. Yeah. At that point, there were a couple of people who started throwing coins. This was a symbolic gesture as well, because it was, of course, mocking the mafia's tie to paying off the police. So you had a crowd who started throwing coins at the police. And then we hit a part of the story that is perhaps legend or it's been documented, but there was a very butch lesbian who was pushed out. She's considered the real linchpin to all the violence that would soon happen later. No one really knows who she is, but they would just... just and the reason they could describe her in, in so maybe as a butch lesbian is because she was wearing manly clothes. Not dressed gender appropriate. It was believed that she was arrested for not wearing those three pieces of appropriate clothing, but she's thrashing around with the cops, and she's not taking it, and she's screaming, and she actually escapes out of the police car like, right, two or three they times. pushed her into the police Scott, and she popped right back out to a roar of approval from the crowd. Well, it's something about what her, something about her really the crowd just got behind. By this time, the cops are actually grabbing people off the street and pulling them inside the club. The cops are actually, you know, strangely enough, trapped inside of Stonewall and can't leave. One of the people that they pulled in, believe it or not, was a heterosexual folk singer who was next door at the Lion's Head who popped out to see what was going on. His name was uh, Dave Van Ronk. He was hit and then pulled inside and handcuffed inside the club. The police, with Dave and some others, were basically back into the uh, Stonewall. The Stonewall became their fortress, ironically, and they shut the door and they barricaded themselves in to, you know, protect themselves from the mob outside. At the same time, a parking meter was ripped up from the street and was actually being used to ram against the door by the rioters to get inside at the police. There was you know, fire-lit bottles were being like sent into the building. I mean, it was, it was getting People really dangerous. People actually went up in those plywood coverings, co- you know, covering the, the windows outside. They were trying to light those on fire, making Molotov cocktails, throwing them when they succeeded in making a hole in the door, throwing them inside. They tried to burn down the stonewall with the police inside. By, by this time, though, you have to remember, on top of the original crowd, you now have a lot of the, the homeless youth that were in the park. You have a lot of non-gay people who are there. You have you have an incredible collection of people at this time, not just the original people. It's completely chaotic, completely out of control, and hundreds of people. And Pine has been radioing 
the police headquarters to get backup because they never expected it to turn out this way. Trying to get other officers to back them up and to basically get the riot under control. Finally, one of those female undercover cops managed to sneak out an upstairs window, jump across the rooftops, and basically call to the precinct and get some backup and also to the fire department to get some engines Right, and in. so then this here comes the, the six precinct police and the tactical police force, the riot police, if you will, and they basically pried the crowd from the entrance of the club so that everyone could escape. And it's amazing. I mean, the tactical patrol forces were this group that were specially trained to counter Vietnam protesters. Never in their wildest dreams had they thought that they would be combating a group of protesting homosexuals and here you were i mean they were like you were getting in these like individual battles with swinging nightsticks against transvestites in this like all their in their riot gear like trying to clear the street as they were walking but then all these street kids would just run around the block because the west village is so chopped up and strange it would be nothing just to sort of like circle around the block i mean they could run up seventh avenue they could go on west 10th they could come down waverly they could hang a right on christopher go up gay street walk down grove street i mean there were all of these corners and weird little angles now on top of all of this then well they the you have the line dancers so the probably the most fabulous part of this whole story so the riot police are you know with their shields are are coming forward and then you have lines of young gay flaming homosexual men doing a high kick doing like a like a chorusing a rocket as a tribute to the rockets and they're singing this song called we are the stonewall girls you, would you like to sing it for us, Tom? I, I can hum the melody. <laughs> Do you know the melody? We are the Stonewall Girls. We wear our hair in curls. We wear our dungarees above our Nelly knees. <laughs> um, Stick wow. to my day job? Uh, no, I think you should go out and record that. But anyway, so this is the... So and there were other verses, too, that were a little bit more... This very absurd thing was going on, that of just a weird mix of seriousness, some lightness, and so eventually... But something about seeing street kids, you know, arm in arm and kicking in the face of riot police who had broken up Vietnam protests, singing a song and taking on a Rockettes kick line is so glorious, you know? It, Gutsy. What? That's pride, folks. <laughs> the riot continued late into the night. There would be 13 arrests, uh, four police injured, according to some 400 police present, and it didn't stop there. No, it didn't. The uh, Because people would come, they, people who had heard about it would then come back the next night. So then Saturday, Sunday night, and then even as far as Wednesday night, there were still crowds of hundreds of people who would show up. The crowds would be a little different, though, because this would be people who who were straight supporters, um, other kinds of radical non-gay supporters. Uh, the Manichean Society was even there handing out literature because now it was sort of a gay event, if you will. People were chanting gay power. Uh, you know, trash cans were being set on fire. Thousands of people chanting, filling the street, stopping traffic. But then the, the riots kept going on until several days afterwards uh, during the evenings but luckily forming and like really having for the first time a large group of gay people out in public at once it sparked all this gay activism all this excitement now for actually like pulling themselves together it's amazing to think today i think we take it for granted but this was a group that had never seen its power in numbers represented so i think that they were probably pretty shocked to see each other and see the mass 
together and see the power that was there. So one of the first groups that formed from this were called the Gay Liberation Front. It wouldn't stay together that long, but other groups would come from that. And it basically started this ball rolling. And you also have to keep in mind that all this is happening late 60s, early 70s. And there's this real desire to not take oppression any further or, or to take your situation and compare it to others and realize, well, I want that. I want to be able to do the things that that person is doing. I want to be able to be myself. Now, Stonewall Raid and the Stonewall Riots certainly got people mobilized and seeing each other. But later on that same year, there'd be another raid. It wasn't like the raid stopped on the gay clubs. They were on their way down, but they hadn't stopped. Including another notable raid at the snake pit. Uh, Notable because they brought in a lot of gay men to the police station. A lot of people had been arrested and one man was there and he panicked. He did not understand that they were about to be released and that they weren't going to be arrested. He didn't have his green card. Right. He he didn't didn't speak English very well, but he he panicked. He ran up to the roof of the building and jumped. Well, he was trying to get to another building, but then fell and he ended up getting impaled on a fence. And as dis- as disturbing as that is, what hap- they took pictures. The pictures were in the papers the next day. And this was sort of the... Well, this also shows the, the media savvy of the Gay Liberation Front because they had connections with the New York Post and they got newspapers in there as quickly as possible to photograph this tragedy to raise the public awareness, which was a major hit point. Home. And so amazingly, just a few months later, on the anniversary of Stonewall, on June 28, 1970, just a year later... So much was being done in terms of gay activism and in creating a community that they actually had the very first gay pride parade a year after the Stonewall riots. They called this Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, and it was from Sheridan Square up to Central Park. It was the first real mass gathering of gay people in New York City, people, and also people from up and down the East Coast. Up to 2,000 people marched in 1970. It was 15 blocks long. And when they started out, they were afraid for their own lives and for their own safety, thinking that people might throw things at them. They were told by the police to you know, not wear any jewelry or anything because it, they could be attacked and they could be robbed. But essentially, it just flummoxed New York. People just stood around in sort of like complete awe and shock. And as they marched north, more and more people joined in the march, realizing that this was a group, again, seeing strength in numbers. I mean, you you can basically see the gay liberation movement started on this day, though, of course, you wouldn't have had this day if it wasn't for those wild, chaotic Stonewall riots. And if you can think about that moment in Central Park, when the group arrived at Sheep's Meadow, on top of the hill, looked around and saw thousands of people who had joined the movement as they marched north. This was an incredible sight, an incredible feeling for this group, the first parade. Stonewall, the bar, however, wouldn't live to see this parade, believe it or not. It was closed three months after the riot. It was so notorious. It couldn't stay open. It was a mafia-run place. And gay groups even boycotted it because of the mafia influence, and they could do so now because they actually had the power to do it. So through the 70s and through the 80s, it it was a Chinese restaurant. Um, it was a shoe store. However, it did reopen in the early 90s, just, or at least rather just the west section of it just opened, and to become a bar, uh, back to the Stonewall, it was a gay bar, in two floors in the late 90s. Now it's just kind of a normal place. Like You wouldn't really see it and be like, wow, this is a place of like mass historical importance here. But, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing some a little bit more of like a dazzling reinvention, but maybe it's nice that it's just sort of a normal bar. 
And we should add that it's no longer controlled by the mafia. No, no. And by the way, we should dispel. You probably say, "Well, when I hear about Stonewall, I heard I right, hear that it's the famous. I hear it's Judy because Garland. I heard it's the because the gays were all upset about Judy Garland dying. And it's true. She her funeral was that day. I'm sure that there were some distraught people well there were even some people who had attended her funeral or who had stopped by who may have had it on their mind that night but were those the people who really got this thing going well those weren't the rioters young gay homeless youth probably weren't listening to judy garland whether they liked her or not we who can say but that wasn't that was not the it, it was more of a symbolic thing i guess a lot of like older gay men at this time or like the adult gay men listened to judy garland and i'm sure that that was it was sort of a symbolic type of thing like judy garland died and this old way of thinking about being gay has also died finally we should add that on top of our own um, New York City Gay Pride Parade, which happens at the end of June, that every borough has a Gay Pride Parade on each week of June. I'm not, we don't have the list right in front of us. But Throughout the, June, it's celebrated. But almost weekends. more interestingly, there's this thing called the Christopher Day Celebration that happens in Europe in over 30, 40 cities. They've taken Christopher Street, and it's become this international thing, and they actually call it the Christopher, the Christopher Day Celebration. It's I incredible. I love that it's called the Christopher Day. So that's our look at, at the Stonewall riots and their effects and the context in which they happened. We pulled from a lot of sources on this particular one, but we tried something a little different. We both we both read the same book this week. And we usually challenge each other with different right. sources. We just because this is really defining history on Stonewall called Stonewall by and David Carter. And you should Carter. see us listener, we're both holding this book right now next to no, each other. No, I mean other. it was a very good it's a very good sort of journalistic approach and it's by David Carter. It's called Stonewall. If you want um, a, a lot of the good gritty detail, it's a good book to read. But there's a lot of other books. I mean there's also a movie, a fictionalized movie about Stonewall. But what I like so much about Carter's book is that he, you know, so many of these events were up for debate or because they weren't being captured by cameras. How the riot unfolded is different depending on who you talk to. And he talks to so many people and he reconstructs it and shows you opposing points of view. Thank you for listening. Check out our blog, as usual, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I'll have a few late 60s pictures of some of our rioters and some of the more interesting folk involved with this. Also, if you are on Facebook, please be our friend. Please be our friend on Facebook. You can just type in Bowery Boys. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, Practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.